Thank you for inviting me this morning. I've come this morning with my husband, Colin, and our lovely lodger, Kate, um, and I've roped them in to do a couple of readings. So. Um, so my husband and I, we go to a church in Yeovil. We live in Yeovil, we go to Yeovil Family Church, which is a New Frontiers church. Um, and I believe somebody, a few people here came and heard me speak about the book that I'd written, which is how you learnt about me. So I'm just going to share a little bit about how that came about. Um, so my daughter, a couple of, three, three, four years ago, um, came and told me that she was suffering with an eating disorder. Um, the bottom fell out my world at that point. It was very difficult. I also had friends that were struggling um, with different mental illnesses, depression, anxiety, um, off work with stress. And I was kind of w walking alongside these people thinking, so where is the church in this? They didn't seem comfortable sharing about what they were going through in their churches. And I felt God say to me at one point during that, that I want you to write a book about this. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I said, yes, God, and then didn't do anything. Um, so it was a good few months later. My daughter, thankfully, was coming through her illness, and I felt that I had some time on my hands. Um, but I was in a meeting with a church leader who was talking about a, a training that was coming up on mental illness, and he said something like, I can't bear the thought of going. I don't want to learn about Down syndrome and things. And it totally shocked me. And um, I felt God give me that nudge in the side. That's why I want you to write that book. So that's when it started, really. I felt like I, I can do this, even if it's just a, a pamphlet that I print off at home. I can write something from my experiences and from other people. So I started by an online anonymous survey that I sent out to as many people as possible and asked them to send it out to Christians, finding out what experiences Christians were going through um, within their churches, if they were having a mental illness themselves or if they were trying to support somebody in their family or their friends. So the surveys came back and unfortunately the majority of them were that they didn't feel that their church was supportive, that they didn't feel they could be honest because they were concerned about different things. Like if they were leaders, they were concerned they would be asked to step down. Um, if they were um, part of the congregation, they might be asked to leave. There was a couple who told me they had been asked to leave, um, that they were obviously not proper Christians because they wouldn't be having this illness in the first place if they were proper Christians. And I was shocked. There was so much. There were obviously some that were coming back saying, yes, I do feel supported. I do feel welcome. And I was so relieved to read those ones. But out of those surveys, I then contacted other people and said, can you tell me more? Tell me more of what it's like day to day living with this. And so that's how the book came about. I, I at some point realized I had to start writing something and not just gathering information. Um, so the first part of the book is what is mental illness and ill health and what is mental health and ill health? What um, various um, conditions do people have? What, what's out there? And a little bit of information. I know I got some help with that because I'm not an expert. Um, and then the middle part of the book were people's stories. So the things people told me, what they were going through, what it's actually like. Because we might have a glimmer of an idea, but behind closed doors, we don't really know what people are struggling with. So those are the stories in the middle of the book. And then the end of the book were all the things I collected from people, tips and ideas and helpful things for them that churches could be doing. 
um, to walk alongside people who are struggling with, with all sorts of different things. Um, so here I am. This is, this is what's happening this morning. There's two parts. In the first half, we'll look at what is stigma and shame. What is mental health and ill health? What kinds of things are people struggling with? Perhaps sitting here alongside you this morning. And then in the second half, we'll take a look at what we can do as individuals and as a church to perhaps change how we see, talk to, and behave around people who have mental health difficulties. And also, how can we look after ourselves and those who care for people? So I'm going to start with a short video clip that really explains, I mean, I might as well not talk to you, just the clip, um, and then I'll go home. But no, um, it's a short clip. It has been shortened. So um, the break that she, it's Sheila Walsh, the break that she's talking about is a mental breakdown that she had. And I guess my greatest heart for the church is that we would begin to understand that mental illness is that. It's an illness. It's not a lack of faith. It's not some secret sin in your life. Um, I would have so many people who came up to me before I ended up in hospital and say, come on, remember, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I wanted to say, look, if your child fell off the swing and lay there with a the broken leg, would you say, come on, get up. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My break just appeared in a place that wasn't quite so visible. But I think we have, this is our moment as the church. If we all realize that Christ, I mean, if you think of the ultimate position of Christ, it's this. It's come as you are, arms wide open. Not you have to pass a series of tests and ask, answer the right questions, but you get to show up as you are and be loved and be heard and be understood. And I think we could be on the beginning of the greatest days of our life. So in researching for the book and chatting with people, studying the survey responses, what became clear was that many, many Christians feel a sense of shame at having a mental health issue. It is an illness like any other, and yet people are ashamed and feel unable to share or seek support. The stigma surrounding mental illness is such that, unfortunately, the church doesn't seem to be a natural place Christians go to for help. Imagine you're in a room full of people and the leader asks you for a show of hands as to who's ever broken a bone or how many suffer from diabetes or high blood pressure. There would be discussion and comparison of the number of bones and the symptoms, etc. But imagine a different question. A request for show of hands as to who has ever taken antidepressants or how many suffer from anxiety or an eating disorder. How many would have raised their hands then? Sadly, feelings of shame are often experienced by Christians with a mental illness. Guilt and shame aren't the same. Guilt focuses on behaviour. Guilt says, I made a mistake, I did something wrong. Shame, however, focuses on self. Shame says, I am a mistake. I am something wrong. Shame's companions are fear, lies and rejection, accusing people that they will never be good enough. Shame is a painful feeling, relating to how we see ourselves and how we appear to others. And unlike guilt, it doesn't depend on us having done anything, but the feelings can be very deep and hard to articulate. Many people with a mental illness experience deep feelings of disappointment and inadequacy that they do not know how to overcome. 
It takes exceptional courage to show vulnerability in being honest about mental health issues. And the more brave people that do this, the freer they will be from the shame that has haunted them. Shame will affect your relationships with people and with God. And it's therefore important as a church that we allow people to talk about what their experience with their illness. And we include them in all aspects of church life. Now I've asked Kate if she'll come and read the story of Zacchaeus. Um, I don't know if you know the old Sunday school song, but Kate didn't know it, so I can't get her to sing it. But she's going to read it for us. Luke 19, 1 to 10. Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to the guest of the sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and I have cheated anybody out of it, out of anything. I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thank you. So Zacchaeus didn't fit in. We know he was short. He was a tax collector. People called him a sinner and he cheated people. He was excluded by people, stigmatized. Maybe some of this was due to his behavior towards people, but I bet there were people who didn't directly, weren't directly affected by him, who still ignored him or listened to the gossip and negative talk. So how does Jesus respond? Well, he stops his own journey and takes notice of Zacchaeus. He asks Zacchaeus for something, to stay at his house, immediately giving him purpose and raising his self-esteem. He goes to Zacchaeus' house. He reaches into his life as it is at that very moment. He doesn't ask him to change anything straight away. He gives him a chance. Jesus gives Zacchaeus value and identity And because of it, Zacchaeus' eyes are opened to what he's done and how he can make amends. Now, these things are all ways we can think about moving from stigmatising to valuing people. Mental health awareness and understanding will help us reduce the stigma. Mental health is sometimes called well-being or emotional well-being. Being mentally healthy is something we cannot take for granted. It is as important as our physical health and needs looking after. However, much like our physical health, we cannot control certain aspects of our lives that impact our mental health. The demands on our daily lives can change from one minute to the next. So the key is how we manage those demands and how we cope when we cannot manage them. Mental health is defined as a state of well-being in which every individual realises his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. Now think of your mental health as a metal spring, perhaps one of those little ones from inside a pen or one from the outside of a trampoline. 
When it's in use, the spring is stretched, pulled and compressed. It doesn't stay still all the time. In the same way, our mental health is stretched with difficulties and stress. We can feel pushed and pulled in all directions with anxiety, worry, sadness and depression being experienced at regular intervals. Being mentally healthy is not about never having challenges and varying moods, but about how our mind deals with life's demands and changing circumstances, either consciously or not. Think again of your mental mental health as that spring. Imagine having a bad day with lots of pressures where maybe your spring is stretched to its fullest or a bereavement where maybe your spring is pushed in as tight as possible. Usually the spring when released goes back to its original form but imagine it doesn't. The stretching and pulling, pushing and squashing down is too much for it. It's bent out of shape. It will not spring back. Those feelings of extreme stress, anxiety or depression that we've lived with for years and which usually pass, this time, don't dissipate as quickly as they might have done previously. And this can affect every part of our day-to-day life. Your spring is maybe only slightly out of alignment or maybe it's extremely askew. Either way, it is still a spring, but it's just not working like it once did. This analogy may give you some insight into what it can be like living with a mental illness, but of course it's a very simplified version, and every individual is different. We must bear in mind that for most people, the condition can occur just at certain times, meaning for the majority of their day or week they can function, as well as any other person. But at other times, the mental health issue can prevent people from feeling and behaving as they usually would. Other people are living with the condition all day, every day. Mental illness can affect anyone, irrespective of age, gender, race, class, position, social background or religion. We're all at risk of developing an issue with our mental health at any point in our lives and Christians and church leaders are no exception. Much like asthma, heart disease or a broken ankle, the condition can be lived with and often recovered from and is not something to be afraid of and nor hidden. Statistics state that one in four people will have a mental health issue every year. But those only refer to the people that have sought professional help. The actual figure is likely much, much higher. In spite of its prevalence, as we said, there appears to be a stigma associated with admitting to having poor mental health. People feel uncomfortable talking about it even to their own doctor. The most common types of mental illness are depression, anxiety, eating disorders, addictions, psychosis and personality disorders. And all of these in themselves can lead to self-harm and eating eating disorders and suicidal thoughts. All of these I go into more detail in my workshop. But this morning there's really not enough time. So rather than me talking anymore I thought I'd show you two short video clips. One that describes what depression can be like and one that explains anxiety really well. These will probably be the two most prevalent conditions in your church. So it is important you at least get a basic understanding. So the first one is a depression explanation. I had a black dog. His name was Depression. Whenever the black dog made an appearance, I felt empty and life just seemed to slow down. 
he could surprise me with a visit for no reason or occasion. The black dog made me look and feel older than my years. When the rest of the world seemed to be enjoying life, I could only see it through the black dog. Activities that usually brought me pleasure suddenly ceased to. He liked to ruin my appetite. He chewed up my memory and my ability to concentrate. Doing anything or going anywhere with the black dog required superhuman strength. At social occasions, he'd sniff out what confidence I had and chase it away. My biggest fear was being found out. I worried that people would judge me. Because of the shame and stigma of the black dog, I was constantly worried that I'd be found out. So I invested vast amounts of energy into covering him up. Keeping up an emotional lie is exhausting. Black dog could make me think and say negative things. He could make me irritable and difficult to be around. He would take my love and bury my intimacy. He loved nothing more than to wake me up with highly repetitive and negative thinking. He also liked to remind me how exhausted I was going to be the next day. Having a black dog in your life isn't so much about feeling a bit down, sad or blue. At its worst, it's about being devoid of feeling altogether. As I got older, the black dog got bigger and he started hanging around all the time. I'd chase him off with whatever I thought might send him running. But more often than not, he'd come out on top. Going down became easier than getting up again. So I became rather good at self-medication, which never really helped. Eventually, I felt totally isolated from everything and everyone. The black dog had finally succeeded in hijacking my life. When you lose all joy in life, you can begin to question what the point of it is. Thankfully, this was the time that I sought professional help. This was my first step towards recovery and a major turning point in my life. I learned that it doesn't matter who you are, the black dog affects millions and millions of people. It is an equal opportunity mongrel. I also learned that there was no silver bullet or magic pill. Medication can help some and others might need a different approach altogether. I also learned that being emotionally genuine and authentic to those who are close to you can be an absolute game changer. Most importantly, I learned not to be afraid of the black dog and I taught him a few new tricks of my own. The more tired and stressed you are, the louder he barks. So it's important to learn how to quiet your mind. It's been clinically proven that regular exercise can be as effective for treating mild to moderate depression as antidepressants. So go for a walk or a run and leave the muck behind. Keep a mood journal. Getting your thoughts on paper can be cathartic and often insightful. Also keep track of the things that you have to be grateful for. The most important thing to remember is that no matter how bad it gets, if you take the right steps, talk to the right people, black dog days can and will pass. I wouldn't say that I'm grateful for the black dog, but he's been an incredible teacher. He forced me to reevaluate and simplify my life. I learned that rather than running away from my problems, it's better to embrace them. The black dog may always be part of my life, but he'll never be the beast that he was. We have an understanding. I've learned through knowledge, patience, discipline and humour the worst black dog can be made to heal. If you're in difficulty, never be afraid to ask for help. There is absolutely no shame in doing so. The only shame is missing out on life.
hopefully that's helped you get a little bit more of an understanding. Obviously, everyone is different, so please just talk to people and find out what it's like for them. We'll do a bit, a little bit about that later. Um, so anxiety is a, another um, quite common um, condition, probably within our hospital or if we've got a difficult meeting at work. Anxiety taps into our fight or flight mechanism. It protects us from danger or helps us to check things are just as we'd like them to be. It can make us more alert and improve our performance. But overthinking a situation or worrying too much can make us tired, unable to concentrate and feel on edge all the time. As soon as one anxious thought goes, another comes along. And if we experience anxiety for too long, day after day, night after sleepless night, it affects our health and our ability to do normal day-to-day -day things at home and at work. Anxiety makes us feel trapped even in our safest places. We get scared about going out or meeting people. Everything gets bigger and bigger and feels out of control. We have rapid and repeated thoughts and sometimes panic attacks. Thoughts rush round, rapid, deep breathing, feeling faint, room spinning. This feels like a heart attack. Got to get out. Anxiety feels like a bird of prey. It's got its claws into you. For some people, anxiety leads to obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Now, let's be clear. No one is a little bit OCD. We all have routines and habits, like checking the doors locked, but that isn't OCD. OCD is when it takes ages to leave the house because the door needs checking lots of times. You see, people who have OCD experience unwanted thoughts, unpleasant images or urges that repeatedly enter the mind, causing feelings of anxiety, disgust or unease. These obsessive thoughts lead to debilitating, compulsive behaviours, which are carried out to try and relieve these unpleasant feelings. And if the ritual isn't completed, there's a real fear that something bad is going to happen. Other people experience anxiety if they've witnessed or been involved in an accident or a traumatic event. Someone with post-traumatic stress disorder often relives this event through nightmares and flashbacks and may experience feelings of isolation, irritability and guilt. It too can have a long-term and substantial effect on work and normal day-to-day -day activities and relationships. Whatever form it is, anxiety can take you to places you don't want to go to. The good news, though, is that anxiety can be brought under control. It's important to talk to the doctor and medication can be helpful. Employers can help too. They're not there to be a counsellor, but the more they can understand, the more they can support you. Anxiety is often a response to a problem, and though we may not be able to change the problem, we can change our response to it. So instead of ruminating about the past or worrying about the future, it's important to take control of the mind instead of the mind controlling us. It can be as simple as taking some time just to be still, even while you're at work. Mindfulness combined with Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, or CBT, can also help manage problems by changing the way we think and behave. This takes practice, but it can help deal with issues in a more positive way by breaking them down into smaller, manageable parts and changing negative thought patterns to improve the way we feel. Focusing on our breathing when we start to feel anxiety building regulates it and reduces our heart rate. One method is to consciously breathe in through the nose for a few seconds and then slowly breathe out through the mouth. You can do that at work too. Exercise can help, 
whether it's running, cycling, swimming or walking, or doing something we enjoy, like a hobby. These make our body happy and help our mind feel calmer too. Face up to the problem and it won't be able to face up to you. We may still feel anxious from time to time, but now look who's really in control. Hopefully you found those a bit helpful. So we're going to finish this half looking at a few of the misconceptions about mental health. So myth one, mental health problems are very rare in churches. Well, the fact is that one in four statistic is still the same within churches, um, irrespective of what we believe. It's just how we perhaps deal with them might be different. People with mental illness aren't able to work. Well, the fact is we probably all work alongside people who have mental health problems or we see them out and about in the community. Myth that people with mental health illnesses are usually violent and unpredictable. The fact there is that people with a mental illness are more likely to be victims of violence. And it's a myth that talking about suicide puts the idea into people's minds. The fact is, often people feeling suicidal don't want to worry or burden anyone with how they feel, and so they don't discuss it. But asking directly about suicide, you give them permission to tell them to tell you how they feel. People who have felt suicidal will often say what a huge relief it is to be able to talk about what they're experiencing. And once someone starts talking, they've got a better chance of discovering other options. So let's start more conversations with people and stop being afraid of saying the wrong thing. So we're going to have a break. And after the break, we'll take a look at what we as individuals and as a church we can do to walk alongside people and prevent those feelings of stigma and shame.